Beethoven Orchestraville. Orchestraville? Where's that? You change, you change four score and seven to, to 87? A landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. I don't blame them for dyeing your hair, I said, but they waited too long to embalm it. Time now for spinning my dad's vinyl. Here with all his skips, scratches, and pops is my dad, Frank Baccarello. Thanks, sweetie, and thank you for tuning into episode 83 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. It's a 78 RPM Sunday, and back to the time of Shakespeare we go. The music was conceived due to the composer's love of an actress. The orchestra recorded here was assembled to lure the conductor out of Italy. So, get ready to hear excerpts from one of the most famous love stories in history with Volume 83, Toscanini Conducts Berlioz.
Seoul, three tests, concert eight bal, Grand Fetche Capulet Part One, or Romeo's Reverie, which is way easier to say, and that's what I'm going to keep saying for the rest of this episode. Okay, why this album for this episode? Well, as I make my way through my dad's 78 RPM section of his collection, I keep finding intriguing music and recordings. Not only was this a famous piece of music from the 1800s, but the orchestra and the man conducting that orchestra were very popular in the 1900s. Plus, this is one of the most colorful album covers I have seen in his stacks of shellac. So, let's move on to part two.
Romeo's Reverie Part 2. Okay, let me tell you about my dad's shellac I have chosen for this episode. NBC Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Arturo Toscanini, Romeo and Juliet, Opus 17, Dramatic Symphony Excerpts. It's on the RCA Victor Red Seal label, number DM1160. It's a three shellac, 12-inch, 78 RPM album format. It was released in 1947. Its genre is classical, and its style is romantic. Now, what the description seems to leave out is that the music was composed by Hector Berlioz, and that the inside front cover says Berlioz, Romeo and Juliet, Dramatic Symphony Part 2, Romeo Lone Fate at the Capulet's Love Scene. It was recorded from broadcasts and rehearsals in February 1947. Now, there are six parts to this, and we will hear all six parts. Now, the entire inside front cover is filled with notes from Berlioz and explanation of the music. Now, I have chosen to read just the first few. Like his celebrated Fantastique Symphony, Berlioz's initial inspiration for the composition of the dramatic symphony Romeo and Juliet stemmed from his intense and passionate love for the Irish Shakespearean actress Harriet Smithson. He had seen her first in 1827 in Paris, where she played the role of Ophelia in Shakespeare's Hamlet, as well as that of the heroine in Romeo and Juliet. Although he understood not a word of English, Berlioz was overcome with love, and for six years he pursued her in his tempestuous, Byronic fashion. In 1833, Harriet Smithson became Mademoiselle Berlioz. Despite the fact that he had outlined the idea for a Romeo and Juliet symphony during 1828-29, Berlioz did not carry out his project for another ten years. By a lucky stroke of fortune, the great violinist Paganini, who four years before had commissioned from him the Herald in Italy's Symphony for Orchestra with Viola, showed up at the Paris concert which Berlioz conducted on December 16, 1838. The program included the the Fantastique Symphony and Herald in Italy. Two days later, a letter was delivered to the composer's lodgings which read as follows, My dear friend, Beethoven is dead, and Berlioz alone can revive him. I have heard your divine composition, so worthy of your genius, and beg you to accept, in token of my homage, uh, 20,000 francs, which will be handed to you by the Baron de Rothschild and presentation of the enclosed. Your most affectionate friend, Niccolo Paganini, Paris, December 18, 1838. Berlioz himself takes up the story of what followed in his memoirs, edited by Ernest Newman in 1932. Having discharged my debts and finding myself still in possession of a considerable sum, my one idea was to spend it in the way of music. I must, I said to myself, leave off all the other work and write a masterpiece, a grand new plan, a splendid work full of passion and imagination and worthy to be dedicated to the illustrious artist to whom I owe so much. At last, after much indecision, I hit up on the idea of a symphony with choruses, vocal vocal solos, and choral recited halves on the sublime and ever-novel theme of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. I wrote in the prose all the text intended for the vocal pieces which come between the instrumental selections. 
Emil Deschamps, with his usual delightful good nature and marvelous facility, set it to verse for me, and I began. Berlioz worked for seven months on that symphony. Now, if you consider that 20,000 francs in 1838 is worth roughly $600,000 in U.S. dollars today, I would say he had a considerable sum left. Now, I have not seen this sold on Discogs.com, so though there is no value listed. Uh, no copies were found on Amazon. I did find one on eBay for $20.19. Now, my dad's albums are in poor condition in the selection. These, these are 78 RPM records. They need to be deep cleaned, and a better needle is needed for me to get better sound out of them. The cover is actually in fair condition with just a little wear on the top and bottom edges. There seems to be a familiar crease at the top of the binding uh, that's happening on most of the 78 RPMs in his collection. So I will value my dad's album at $5. Okay, now for the first conclusion.
Romeo's Reverie concluded. Okay, time now to learn about the composer and the conductor. The composer, Louise Hector Berlioz, was born December 11, 1803. He was a French Romantic composer and conductor. His output includes orchestral works such as the Symphony Fantastique and Herald in Italy, choral pieces including the Requiem and Le Fance du Christ, his three operas, Benvenuto Cellini, Les Troyennes, and Beatrice et Benedict, and works of hybrid genres such as the dramatic symphony Romeo et Juliette and the dramatic legend La Damnation de Faust. The elder son of a provincial doctor, Berlioz was expected to follow his father into medicine, and he attended a Parisian medical college before defying his family by taking up music as a profession. His independence of mind and refusal to follow traditional rules and formulas put him at odds with the conservative musical establishment of Paris. He briefly moderated his style sufficiently to win France's premier music prize, the Prix de Rome, in 1830, but he learned little from the academics of the Paris Conservatoire. Berlioz was largely apolitical and neither supported nor opposed the July Revolution of 1830, but when it broke out, he found himself in the middle of it. He recorded events in his memoirs. I was finishing my cantata when the revolution broke out. I dashed off the final pages of my orchestral score to the sound of stray bullets coming over the roofs and pattering on the wall outside my window. On the 29th, I had finished and was free to go out and roam about Paris until morning, pistol in hand. He was quite the antagonist when it came to that era of music. His work, Cleopatra, had attracted disapproval from the judges because to, uh, to highly conservative musicians, it betrayed dangerous tendencies. Berlioz died March 8, 1869. Italian conductor Arturo Toscanini was born March 25, 1867 in Parma, Italy. Originally a cellist, he began his career as opera conductor after having participated as cellist in the world premiere of Verdi's Othello at La Scala in 1887 under the composer's supervision. Toscanini's ability to interpret his scores impressed the composer. From 1898 to 1908, Toscanini was resident conductor at La Scala Milan. Outside of Europe, he conducted at the Metropolitan Opera in New York from 1908 to 1915, as well as the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, 1926 to 1936. Toscanini was the first non-German conductor to appear at Bayreuth, 1930 to 31. In the 1930s, he conducted at the Salzburg Festival, 34 to 37, and the inaugural concert in 1936 at the Palestine Symphony Orchestra, now the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra in Tel Aviv. He took the Scala Orchestra to the United States on a concert tour in 1920-21. Toscanini made his first recordings for Victor Talking Machine Company about this time. Though he ran in 1919 unsuccessfully as a fascist parliamentary candidate in Milan and had been called the greatest conductor in the world by Mussolini, he became disillusioned with fascism and left for the United States where the NBC Symphony Orchestra was created for him in 1937. During a concert on April 4, 1954 in Carnegie Hall, Toscanini suffered a memory lapse caused by a transient ischemic attack. He never conducted live in public again. Toscanini was 87 years old when he retired. He died January 16, 1957 in New York. He was a month short of his 90th birthday. 
Okay, now on to the three parts of the more.
seen the more part one time now for this episode's interesting side note and it has to do with how horribly this piece was initially received by the critics here is more from berlioz's memoir to my keen regret paganini never either heard or read it i was always hoping for his return to paris and besides i was waiting to send him the symphony until it was entirely finished off and printed in the meantime he died at Nice on May 27, 1840, and to the grief I felt at his death was added that of not knowing whether he would have approved the work undertaken chiefly to please him and justify him to himself for what he had done to its author. He also seemed much to regret not having heard the work, as he told me in his letter from Nice, dated January 7, 1840, in which he says, Now that all is done, envy cannot but be silent. Poor, dear, great friend. Happily for him, he never read the horrible nonsense in many of the Paris newspapers about the plan of the work, the introduction, the adagio, Queen Mab, the allocution of Father Lawrence. One regarded it as an extravagance on my part to have attempted this new form of symphony. Another could find nothing in the scherzo of Queen Mab but a little grotesque noise like that of an ill-greased syringe. A third, speaking of the love scene, the adagio, the part three quarters of the European musicians who know it now rank above all I have written, asserted that I had not understood Shakespeare. Toad, swollen with imbecility, if you could prove that to me. No unlooked-for criticisms ever wounded me more cruelly, and as usual, none of these Aristarchs writing in praise or blame of my work pointed out to me one of its real defects. They left me to discover them in succession and correct them for myself. If I have struck out no more blemishes, at least I have looked for them in all good faith and applied such sagacity as I possess to their discovery. After that, what is left to the author but to avail frankly that he cannot do better and resigned himself to the imperfection of his work? When I had come to that, and not till then, was the Symphony of Romeo and Juliet published. And here we are still listening to it nearly 200 years later.
seen the more part two well i hope you enjoyed this episode as much as i enjoyed bringing it to you not only was it a pleasure to hear one of the greatest pieces of romantic music ever written but to hear it under the direction of one of the greatest conductors in history i'm just glad radio had the equipment to record this great music when they did and now for our second conclusion
seen the more concluded. And there you have a 78 RPM Sunday with selections from the MBC Orchestra playing Romeo and Juliet. So thanks for tuning into Volume 83, Tuscanini Conducts Berlioz, however you did. If you want more information about this show, head over to spinningmydadsvinyl.com. I'll be back next week with all my skips, scratches, and pops for Volume 84, Dixieland for Dinner. Until then, go with the flow, my friends. (laughs) ¶¶